I clutch at my stomach and feel the word S-T-A-B, stab, smoothing out between my left nipple. I have some pretty weird stuff show up on my left nipple, too, sometimes. <laughs> I actually got my left nipple bitten off by a bluegill when I was a little kid, so I used to have a weird scarred nipple. <laughs> bitten off by a what? A bluegill. I was, or maybe like it was a, a small bat. Yeah, I used to I live saw. on a lake, and um, my sister was like, my sister was like, Drabblecast Director's Cut Necessary Cuts by Brian Miller Drabblecast Director's Cuts are special feature episodes here on the Drabblecast where in part one we play a previously aired story uncut and in part two I sit down with the author and interview him about the story, writing, comedy, biblical plagues of frogs, you name it, while re-listening to the story. Hope you enjoy. The manuscripts I read are haunted. Commas vanish forever into the void. Subjects and verbs struggle in bloody disagreement. Infinitives are cleaved with a dull axe. Sentence fragments ablated at one ragged end lay strewn between the margins. I take an exorcist's solemn pride in banishing these warped creatures from the village, sending slapdash monstrosities back to the murky dark from whence they came. The pages come in and the pages go out. My reward is the warm tingle of equilibrium, having restored order to some tiny corner of the world. Well, that and a paycheck. You're a professional stickler, Karen told me once, maybe a little less charitably than I'd liked. I'm in love with a snoot for hire. I don't really expect her to understand, though sometimes I wish she did. Isn't that the untold story of every romance? Karen has a degree in sports and recreation. She organizes children's summer day camps and intramural youth sports leagues for the parks department. Her pixie-cut hair is always a little askew, t-shirts neck-stretched, baggy jeans frayed at the cuffs like the ramshackle uniform of Team Carefree. Karen's laying across my lap when I first see the Brumlow manuscript. The knots of her calves drape over my legs, and her bony ass presses against my thigh. My laptop balances on her knees. She's got her lithe arms stretched behind her head. I'm absently running my fingers through the short bramble of hair beneath the sleeve of her t-shirt. I love those feminine tufts and the delicate baby cactus prickle of her downy legs. Not like the bramble of stubble I shave off my face every morning. One of the little edits I make to my own body according to the style guide I grew up with. Right away, I can tell the Brumlow manuscript is different. It's 42 pages long, and at a glance, not obviously fiction, non-fiction, or poetry. The tabs stagger drunkenly across the page. The haphazard punctuation begs you to search for elaborate patterns, like futures told in scattered chicken bone voodoo. 
in the first sentence. Papamot, that grew me out of the muck, just as his self grew out of the muck, so I could know the others when time came. Time is now. I click away from the file back to the email from my editor, Ragoff, which I hadn't bothered to read. Usually, all of these assignments were self-evident. Tedious technical manuals, ad copy, bloviating self-published memoirs. This was something else. Hey David, it said. I asked the client for clarification and never heard back, but we've already received payment in full, so just you know, do your best. Thanks, Ragoff. I reread the first few pages of the file, hoping to get a sense of how to even start editing it. It appeared to be part rant, part confession, and part instructions for a ritual. Certain names and phrases repeat at odd intervals like atonal choruses. Run-on sentences spliced with Frankenstein commas devolve into vulgar invective. The sickly prose is liberally spiked with a word that I won't type here, only one that I use occasionally in heavy traffic. I try to keep the disparate threads of the manuscript from tangling in my mind. The stories of the missing boys, the babbled procedures, the invocations of Papamut. I keep doubling back in the file. Somehow the longer I read it, the longer it gets and makes even less sense. Finally, I start editing. I try to consolidate redundant phrases, smooth out sentences, barbed edges. I form paragraphs out of vicious nonsense. I work with the confounded diligence of a lost tribesman trying to repair the shattered parts of a downed airplane. At the very least, I try to apply some familiar structure to the incoherence. At some point, I realize that Karen has slid away from me off the couch to do her nightly yoga on a ratty purple mat. I catch her stealing glances at me between downward dogs and bridge poses. You're making weird faces, she says, and you're mumbling. I tell her sorry. The file Ragov sent me is really strange. I just want to plow through it so I can send it off tonight and forget about it. It's squeaky and gross, and there's really not even a, a way to clean it up. So just rearrange the commas and send it back. Well, I mean, it, it still needs to be done right. You can't just pretend that rules don't exist. Karen smiles so easily. Well, I can't complain, since you always do our taxes, but holy shit, you're a nerd. I come join her a few hours after midnight when I send the Brumlow manuscript back to Ragoff. I delete the downloaded file. I dump my trash file. I cut it right out of my life. I don't sleep well that night, or the next. I have a dream that's actually a memory perverted at the fringes. I'm back in preschool, sitting cross-legged on the playroom carpet constructing a Lego castle with a wiry, dark-haired boy named Eddie Hall. I'm plucking mint-sized plastic bricks from a bucket to add to my side. 
All the bricks are blue or green, and I'm doing my best to stagger them in a checkerboard aquamarine pattern. I notice that Eddie is adding yellow and red bricks to his side. He doesn't even look up when I try to correct him. He just says yellow is his favorite color after red. I try to explain to him that the castle won't look right with the mismatched colors. I can't articulate why, and the pressure of this confusion steams my red face. I'm about to start crying when Eddie says I'm being mean. I break one of his yellow bricks off the top to show him. He stands and kicks the whole structure to pieces. That all happened. But in the dream, Eddie's face isn't flushed with a temper tantrum. It's livid purple. His eyes are black. He kicks the crumbled castle like he's stomping the last breaths out of some creature he found squirming on the backside of a road. I throw myself protectively over the castle's battered foundation. Sharp cornered Legos tattoo stinging configurations in the soft skin of my arms and neck and chest as he raises one of his kid sneakers over my head, poised to crash down on the side of my face. When I'm thrashing feebly next to Karen, who sleeps carefree as a corpse. I can still feel the tingle of those Legos biting into me. I breathe and wait, but the feeling doesn't subside. When I run my hands along the insides of my arms, I can feel something rigid there, like a whole coral reef of calcium deposits beneath my skin. The designs are not haphazard. My fingers trace hard shapes that form distinct letters. I fuss over one like a newly blind person trying to read a braille sign until I'm positive I can discern a character of the word. Suffer, suffer, suffer. I bolt up and rush down the lightless hallway. As I'm moving, I keep running my hands down my body, feeling more of those little spurs of language beneath my belly button, on my hips. I feel them floating like stones between my balls, inside my scrotum. There's a terrible second after I flip the switch on the bathroom that I swear I can see a few words disappearing back into my skin. I clutch at my stomach and feel the word S. T-A-B, stab, smoothing out between my left nipple. I think I do. When I look closer in the mirror, I don't see anything but my own panicked face, wide-eyed, with my hair matted to my sweaty forehead. I'm still leaning over the bathroom sink, just breathing, when I feel a hot pinch low down in my gut. It doubles me over. I feel a wet gush in my underwear. When I pull back the elastic waistband of my underwear, I see I haven't pissed myself. There in the fabric is a little squirt of blood, like a period. Except it's not a period. There in the blue cotton, written in muddy red, is a perfect semicolon. I can even make out the font. It's Time's New Roman.
The next morning, I'm on the couch with a heating pad in my lap, and I get an email from Ragoff. Hey, David. Resending you the Brumlow file. The client resubmitted it with a note saying to do it right this time. Super annoying, I know, but they offered to pay double for a second edit. Already sent in the payment, too. I know it's a chore, but if they want to keep throwing money at us, I mean, <laughs> let them. No worry on your end if you can't satisfy their vague-ass demands. You know you're my ace. Best, Ragoff. I don't even open the file. I type out a quick response to Rogoff that I prefer he send this job to one of his other freelancers. He responds almost immediately and makes me even queasier. Yeah, the client asked specifically that you redo it. They must think you're onto something. And we've already got the cash, uh, literally. A delivery guy came by with a big box of money. Mostly quarters, dimes, and some singles. The coins were all oxidized, like somebody raided a wishing well. The whole box smelled like a lake. Guess they'd never heard of PayPal. Your rate on this one doubles too, by the way. Just do your best if you can, and I'm, I'm going to sling you an easy one next time. I tell him fine. I don't start back to work, though. Instead, I spend the whole day drinking tea and watching old episodes of Seinfeld until Karen comes home. She heats up a can of soup to bring me on the couch, gives me a back rub, refills my pot of tea. I select the night's entertainment, more Seinfeld. It must still be surly because just before bed, she asks me what's wrong. Like she's hurt, not angry. I squeezed her hand and tell her about this stupid manuscript that makes no sense that some weirdo client wants me to redo for him. So just do it like they want and screw them. Take the money and run. I tell her I'm trying to do it right, but I don't know how. Forget about it, right? Right? It's not the Manga Carta. Magna Carta. Karen's jaw grinds. Edit them, not me. She stalks off to bed. I'll apologize in the morning. I won't be sleeping anytime soon, though. So as the night limps towards tomorrow, I open my laptop. The Brumlow file is exactly the same as the original. None of my changes have been made. The sickly sensation in my abdomen dulls as I reread the first few pages. The words are more familiar, but somehow make even less sense. Two dozen crimes against grammar leap off the screen. They're only misdemeanors compared to the actual crimes described. All those details about ropes and chains and the boys asking why. It occurs to me that I should just turn this over to the police. There are no specific locations or times referenced. I'm not sure which police department I'd even call. Maybe Ragov would know? But it's not a crime to write fiction or poetry, or whatever this is. And it would be tough to make a coherent confession about anti-poetry, like, We shape the clay of beginning into the shape of end. With faithful hands of the clay, clay, clay. You fuck-shitting bastard, gargling the silt of Pavalod. Screw it. I scroll to the top of the first page and start editing. 
I use AP style, rigid as a knife's edge, to field dress the thing, yanking out coiled guts of bile black prose, pruning nubs of excess punctuation, carving whole sections away. I leave only the bones. I spend the rest of the weekend thrashing in a tangle of soured sheets. I'm like a gif of a sick person, endlessly repeating the same sweaty paroxysms. I leave the bedroom only to shuffle to the bathroom, where I fold over with attacks of diarrhea that smell like a swamp. When I'm awake, I struggle for sleep, and when I sleep, I dream about Eddie Hall kicking my apartment to rubble, while Karen's screaming face recesses into the soupy earth that breathes like an asthmatic toad. When I try to watch Anodyne TV, I can't quite make out what they're saying. I can't read either, although sometimes I can see words in the pockmarks of the textured ceiling, or forming in the dust motes that dance through the windowsill's sunbeam spotlight. I can almost make out what the dirt is trying to tell me. Monday morning, before she goes to work, Karen palms my fevered forehead. A dark little apostrophe of concern forms at her brow. She tells me if I'm not feeling better by the time she's home, we're going to urgent care. I want to tell her I think it's something I read. I just don't know how to say it and make sense. I have food poisoning of the brain. I was only trying to make the necessary cuts. Karen sweeps my greasy hair away from my clammy forehead. She blinks down at me with concern. I also don't tell her about the patterns I see in the saffron thread capillaries around the rim of her bloodshot eyes. The left one says stab. 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 The right one says muck. I lay twisted in bed until 10.30 when I hear a knock at the door, closer to a pounding. I can smell the staleness of my pajamas when I get up to drag myself to the door. Nobody's outside. A thin manila envelope lays on the stoop where the welcome mat would go. I know what it's going to be even before I peel the top open. At first I think a gush of crickets and spiders rain down onto the floor. I fling the package against the wall. More brittle bugs spring forth. No, not bugs. Dead leaves. The envelope is packed with them, brown and palsy to the brittle ends. And there it is, nesting in the dead foliage. A slim sheaf of paper. The Brumlow Manuscript. The pages are dirty and warped, but they don't look especially old. Just waterlogged. The words on the manuscript perfectly mirror the text in the file, right down to each prolonged indentation and string of stuttered profanity. The handwriting is neither arcane script nor furtive scrawl. The penmanship of every single letter appears to be different, as though thousands of hands each contributed a single character. I feel something else knotted at the bottom of the envelope, in a cocoon of crunching leaves. I shake the whole mess onto the living room floor to discover a thick wad of money wrapped in a paper band. 
The bills are old, minted before the redesign in the 90s. They're threadbare and bleached to the color of flood water. It's a salad mix of ones, tens, fifties, and several two-dollar bills. Several hundred bucks altogether. The paper band peels off to reveal a streak of ink on the inside. More handwriting, with those distinctly scrawled individual letters. Just a sentence fragment. Fix it right, David. I flip the envelope over. No name or address, no stamps, no return address. The floor turns marshy beneath my feet as I run for the bathroom. I make it just in time to hit my knees as I start retching. When I open my stinging eyes, I see I've thrown up nothing but pulpy pink stomach lining. A few hundred slivers of me slick the water's surface. I take a closer look. The bloody little bits form a constellation of punctuation. Gory periods, semicolons, hyphens, umlauts, virgules, and gulamats swarm together. Now I can see letters in the ichor, too. They float haphazardly, linking to form words, throat, slay, gash, before breaking apart. I sag against the base of the sink. I can barely move. My gut, my throat, my veins, they're all full of dead words. In the din of my chattering mind, I hear Karen's voice. Just do it like they want. Screw them. I crawl from the bathroom to the living room. Smears of leaves and dust crust my knees and palms. The Brumlow manuscript lays there in the center of the chaos like some baby thing exploded from its egg. I slide the pages over to my computer desk and I pull myself up into the chair. My old laptop hums faithfully. I transcribe the manuscript. I'm careful to maintain the inscrutable tablature and scattershot punctuation. I blaspheme the names of Shun and Strunken White. I recreate the strange rhythms and jarring atonal shifts. Additionally, I add a comma, a dash, a clip, or a phrase. I can't say why, but I'm certain these alterations are correct. I even add a line here and there. I surprise myself with a stanza about bloody shit boys screaming in the soil, broke back clinging to heaven's bedrock. I leave the rituals unchanged, sacrosanct as the idiomatic instructions of an old family recipe. I don't know when I'm finished. I know I did, even if I don't remember sending the file back to Ragoff when I was done. I must have crawled back into bed. I must have. I awaken to early sunshine. The light has the porcelain white freshness of a sun that hasn't yet burned itself orange. Next to me, the covers are cool. The pillow smells like chlorine and sunscreen. I can hear Karen clattering around the kitchen. When I stand up, my joints rattle off a 21 bone salute. I must have slept half a day. I feel good, though. 
The ache is gone from my head, my belly. My eyes pull tight focus. I drowsily run my fingers across the squishy softness of my arms, my stomach. No strange ridges or indentations. I'm tabula rasa. My shirt and underwear reek. I shake them off under a hamper and stand under a lukewarm shower spray. Afterwards, I dry myself off, drop the towel onto the floor, and pad barefoot into the kitchen without bothering to dress. Morning, sunshine, Karen starts to say as she scrapes a clot of jam onto a layer of dark toast. Then she glances over her shoulder at me and says, Oh, hello there. I cross the kitchen to join her. The combination of sunlight and air conditioning feels feels amazing against my skin. Karen presses against me. I kiss her neck. She reaches back to tickle her fingers down my ribcage. You certainly seem to be feeling better, she says. I grind against the warmth of her back. Why don't you tell me more about how I feel? In one move, she spins around, kisses me, and pushes away with the hand not holding the jelly-slick toast. I gotta go. We're doing aquatics today with the preteens. <laughs> Hormone soup. But speaking of which, hold that thought. She looks me up and down, slowly enough so I'll notice. Have a great day. And maybe we'll to-be-continue this when I get home. I'll pick up Indian. No sushi. I slap her ass hard on the way out the door. I want to do it even harder. Even harder, harder, harder. Karen shoots me one last eyebrow-raised look on her way out the door. I don't know what's gotten into you, but I'm not complaining. I took your advice, I tell her. Don't be so rigid. Just let things happen. As she closes the door, she tells me she loves me. I smile. I feel relaxed. Why shouldn't I? Life's been good. Why fight it like the other shit prick rot rot bastard shit shit prick fucking me to Be part of the change. We come from the change. We shape the clay of beginning into the shape of the end. The end. This... This is not the end. Hey folks, Brian Miller here. Thanks so much for listening to the story. I, I really hope you enjoyed it. And it was a, a real thrill to me to have the story on the Drabblecast, especially as part of HP Lovecraft Month. Necessary Cuts definitely began as an HP Lovecraft inspiration. 
Uh, I was thinking about the Necronomicon one day, you know, as people do. And I thought that if somebody wanted to mass distribute this cursed text, it would still have to have an editor and a proofreader. So, you know, what would happen then? But right from the start, I didn't want the book in question to be the actual Necronomicon for a couple of reasons. In Lovecraft's biographies and his correspondence, he clearly gets a kick out of sneaking in references to his colleagues and their stories. But when he wasn't contracting his services out to other writers for extra money, uh, like in his weird brief partnership with Harry Houdini, he's pretty resistant to the idea of collaboration. He doesn't really seem interested in writing Cthulhu with his friends, he wants to read their original mythologies. Plus, there's the whole August Duraleth legacy of appropriation, where what starts off as a tribute maybe veers into playing with dead things, and, you know, children shouldn't play with dead things, according to a movie I saw. The other reason uh, to me is that it's the fun part of writing a haunted manuscript story is coming up with the haunted manuscript. The fun part of writing a monster story is coming up with the monster. I don't want to farm out the fun part and then just spend my time filling in the setting and the dialogue. So uh, the Necronomicon, of course, is presented by Lovecraft as this kind of arcane, elegantly evil scholarly work. So I wanted this manuscript to be the opposite of that, you know, vulgar and violent, like maybe if Leatherface and the Boggy Creek Monster rewrote Dianetics or something like that. Uh, and for the record, I don't know who Papa Mud is or what Papa Mud is. I have some vague ideas about the author behind the Brumlow manuscript, but mostly I haven't I haven't thought it out too much past the borders of the story. Maybe sometime I'll, I'll write another one and, and figure out more about it. Uh, and lastly, the the copy editing concept. So my regular job is actually my night job. I'm a stand-up comedian, which is let me tell you a high-speed money train. So to supplement my income for years, I've done freelance editing and proofreading. Uh, I've spent a lot of time on both sides of the red pen. Uh, and I, I do have inordinately strong feelings about diction and punctuation, so I share the righteous obsession with the proper formatting. But from the other side, it's a very fun revenge fantasy for anybody who's ever had a story hacked up by an editor. Not at Drabblecast, of course. Here we appreciate that sometimes editing has consequences. All right, I'm here with Brian Miller, uh, author of that story, Necessary Cuts, which was Drabblecast 416, came out last year for our HP Lovecraft month. Brian's, uh, he renounced all seriousness and quit his job as a newspaper editor to move to Minneapolis, Minnesota to try his hand at stand-up back in 2008. Uh, in his first year, he was a finalist for Acme's Funniest Person in the Twin Cities contest, and just two years later, he was spotted on CBS's The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, where he uh, made his network television debut in April 2012. Uh, he's also a fantastic writer, uh, fortunate for us, because this was a great story, as you can tell. How you doing, Brian? Uh, very good. Good talking to you, Norm. Awesome. Yeah, I was actually really worried because I was uh, pulling up your bio. I searched for you online, and uh, Brian Miller, comedian with a Y, spelled Brian. Uh, first thing that comes up is Brian Miller, comedian, dies. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> this, we've tried so hard to schedule this interview, of course. <laughs> Fate has truly intervened. <laughs> cool, yeah. I was going to play a little bit of this, uh, some of your stand-up here. I'll ask you about that, because that's neat to be on Craig uh, Ferguson. Is that... <laughs> 
Please welcome Brian Miller, everybody. Brian Miller. <laughs> Excellent. Great to be here. Uh, I'm not wearing any underwear. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's actually because my wife and I are at the end of a laundry cycle right now. The first one of us to acknowledge that they're out of clothes, they're gonna have to do all that laundry. Not gonna be this guy. My wife thought she won the whole thing last night. I got out of the shower, and I dried myself off with like six or seven washcloths. <laughs> and I went out into the living room, and there she was, laying on the couch, eating a big bag of Cheetos, you know, in her wedding dress. <laughs> Looking pretty smug. I didn't say a word to her. I just put on an old Halloween costume and went to bed. <laughs> Which did backfire on me at like two in the morning when I got up to pee and I walked by a mirror and I freaked myself out. <laughs> oh my God, it's a sexy nurse. <laughs> She's not wearing any underwear. She's got a secret. My wife uh, is a vegetarian. I am not. <laughs> Causes some friction, uh, although it gave me a great idea. I'm gonna open up a vegetarian compromise restaurant. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, <laughs> we're still gonna serve meat, but only the parts the animals can afford to live without. <laughs> yeah, and then out back, we'll have the world's saddest petting zoo. Thank you. It's actually kind of hard for me to watch the Ferguson set, especially because it was really early in my career and I had a really, um, I don't know, I had a much more exaggerated delivery. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really sound like what I sound like on stage anymore. So like, I, I still like the jokes okay, but I, I do kind of wince sometimes when I, <laughs> when I hear the Ferguson thing. Well, you do, I mean, you, you pull off that kind of confidence that you need at stand-up, you know? Like, you look like you're, you're, you've done this a million times, you're dressed really casually, uh, you don't look nervous to me. Did you feel nervous? Yeah, I was really nervous. <laughs> I was really nervous. I was yeah, I was pretty new in a stand up, you know, th just a little over three years. And um, yeah, I was really it, it was it was a lot. I, I, it's funny. Like I think then I could fake confidence, and now I can actually be confident. But I I can see the difference for sure. Well, I love this story, Necessary Cuts. I mean, it's 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 an editor's dream to have both Lovecraft and a story kind of poking fun at the editorial process and how, you know, excruciatingly horrific in a cosmic sense it can be. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know about you. I mean, I, you're a fantastic writer, too, in addition to comedian. And, uh, you know, you happened to send the story in right when we had um, our lineup. We had a story drop, an author that was commissioned, which really, you know, kind of screws you over when you're in the month that you're supposed to be writing these stories and you're expecting that draft. And so almost in a, a cosmic Lovecraft story itself that that this story about this weird manuscript pops up in my inbox right when I need it I was almost dubious during to open it up <laughs> <laughs> like, it kind of fits with the theme of the story too yeah the bigger cosmic things at play here <laughs> um but yeah it's yeah pretty... well, I remember sending that to you and then you know I was just sending out submissions I think I was going off the submission grinder mm -hmm. and then I went through and I was like I listened to the a part, clip of the show and I was like oh this show is cool I want to send a story there and I, I sent that story in 
And I mean, it must have gotten back to me in like a day and a half or something. I mean, it was really – I was like, you know, you're used to waiting, you know, a couple of months sometimes between – submission and hearing back and i was like oh whoa okay <laughs> yeah and, and that's unheard, that's unheard of by the way for us a day and a half it that just shows you how desperate we were at that point i was basically looking for anything that was solid that had lovecraft that we could start working with uh to, to fill that month and then to have that that's it kind of justifies all the work of having an open submissions process in the first place because man I mean, you get 100 stories a week you got to keep up with and 99 of them suck but yeah i mean, I mean it certainly worked out for me i remember it was like we, we it was weird it was like we had the contract signed and everything was like the process had started like two days later and i just kept saying to my wife there's no way this is gonna happen like this, this doesn't work out this way you know it's like nothing's this easy you know yeah <laughs> it's pretty crazy. yeah uh, well nobody is going to believe you that's ever submitted to drabblecast that this happened so quick for you because <laughs> it has never happened that the contract comes out within a day i mean we're talking months usually because i'm just such a slacker and i suck but, <laughs> but <laughs> well the process is just a long process it's not you know it's one of the things that i, I like about doing comedy and writing is it like comedy so immediate which is great like if, you know you write a joke in the afternoon you, you know, when, when the open mics are back, you go and you try that joke out that night. It's yeah. such a satisfying immediacy. But then it's kind of fun, you know, with stories, you're sort of sending these things out. And sometimes you'll almost forget you sent a submission out, you know, and then you'll get a thing like, oh, this, uh, we bought this story. Oh, sweet. And then when the actual story comes out, you know, it's months later and you're like, it feels like you, it's funny that like sometimes you'll, I'll, I'll be in like a bit of a rut and a story will come out and people are like, oh, you're really productive lately. And I'll be like, no, 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 I was productive nine months ago. <laughs> Oh, was this your first sale professionally? No, I think it was my fourth. I, I only started really submitting with any purpose in like June of that year. Oh, wow. I've been writing for a long time. I just hadn't, I, I, yeah, I had like a weird block where I just wasn't submitting. And then I just decided uh, during the summer, I was like, I'm going to start really focusing on this and actually like send stuff out and more write more concertedly and write more stories. Cool. Well, um, yeah, this one really scratched the itch for us. Let's listen to it are haunted. Commas vanish forever into the void. Subjects and verbs struggle in bloody disagreement. Infinitives are cleaved with a dull axe. Sentence fragments ablated at one ragged end lay strewn between the margins. I take an exorcist's solemn pride in banishing these warped creatures from the village, sending slapdash monstrosities back to the murky dark from whence One of the things I love that you, you kind of did that was clever is you're using so much the type of pastiche that Lovecraft wrote with to kind of mock him in a sense too, you know? Yeah, I was reading a lot of Lovecraft at the time, and I was reading like a couple of biographies of him. I just kind of, you know, kind of got in a... Got in a mood, and because uh, I don't usually write especially Lovecrafty stuff, but it was uh, it was definitely on my brain. Even though I, I hadn't even seen that you guys had the Lovecraft Month going at that point yet. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, people do this sometimes because it is a fun type of language to use. It's just so overwrought and, and purple that it's it's. I don't know. It's a blast to use words like Cyclopean and. Uh, some of these crazy Icarus. I mean, as much as people think about Lovecraft with his uh, mythos of elder gods and such forth, he really created a mythos of vocabulary that he's known for. You know, some of these words that are only associated with with him. Um, you don't hear the word Icarus very often, aside from Eldritch. Eldritch, yeah. Uh, and everything's unthinkable, unspeakable, and those are the kind of words and, and uh, adjectives that you see pop up in your story a lot. Kind of in, a, in an homage, but also a tongue-in-cheek. The knots of her calves drape over my legs, and her bony ass presses against my thigh. Yeah, it's like you get you get to kind of be as florid as you want to be, and you're yeah. you're only being authentic, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you're not... 
<laughs> the other irony there is, is this guy's an editor and he's supposed to be cutting words out and he's like panache with these words and just making it plunky when he's describing things. I love those feminine tufts and the delicate baby cactus prickle of her downy legs. Not like the bramble of stubble I shave off my face every morning. One of the little edits I make to my own body according to the style guide I grew up with. Oh, I love I love that line when I was reading it the first time. Thinking of shaving as editing. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it kind of is true. Like, if you you know, you're all hygiene. You know, we're all kind of editing ourselves a little bit all the time. You know, you're like polishing it up and... Uh, and I I, uh, I do copy edit, um, or I did before everyone lost all their jobs, and I, I do a lot of copy editing. So it's like editing is a thing I think I'm thinking about a lot, um, just because you're constantly fixing, you know, sometimes great writing and sometimes not so great writing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it, it plays off the idea that there's always that in between whenever you're, an editor is trying to work on a manuscript, where the authors just like really dug in on certain changes that you want to make or think is best for your market, and maybe work good for the story in other places, but you're just like, oh, can I cut this paragraph? Or this doesn't make sense when I read it out loud. And some authors are just like, I'm too married with that part of that idea to let go of it. And then that's essentially what's happening in this story, except for the author is, who knows, a cult leader. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the big question mark is uh is what is this thing papa mud and this cult and these people behind it but certainly they're they they do not act any different than a, a writer typically does when an editor asks for edits and changes yeah i was kind of thinking this this is sort of a horror story from both perspectives yeah. right because uh-huh. like because like from the editor's perspective it's a terrible client but from the writer's perspective it's like you're butchering my work yeah at least editors have the uh, the luxury of not having manuscripts sent to them that are all squishy and smelling like leaves and things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So far. <laughs> yeah. I really tried to, uh, because this, this, this sells really well in a read that has um, really dramatic uh, and taking itself dead serious. You know, the same tone that the author is doing here, even though it is underlying everything. It's horror, but it's definitely comedy. And to, to play that up and, and kind of like uh, as if it wasn't trying to be comedy is, is, the, is what you're good at in your writing. And we just bought another story from you, which is the same awesome treatment of a uh, very ridiculous notion, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but played out as if it was normal, you know? Yeah, it's my favorite my favorite new story. I'm glad you dug it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I can't wait for people to hear it. Back in the file. Somehow the longer I read it, the longer it gets and makes even less sense. Finally, I start editing. I try to consolidate redundant phrases, smooth out sentences, barbed edges. I form paragraphs out of vicious nonsense. Vicious nonsense. (laughs) I've definitely edited some vicious nonsense. Like sometimes when somebody's like, there's like a there's like a level at which writing it goes from clunky and awkward to just like insultingly disjointed. Where it's like, no, no, this isn't this is an attack on me as a reader. Yeah. Well, and also I just I have a big fan of whenever people use adjectives that are uh, describing the opposite of kind of what they do. Like a very vicious nonsense. Like a nonsense is nothing. You know, it's it's not something (laughs) people think of as hardcore enough to be described as vicious. It was then hard to to write vicious nonsense because I didn't want to do the Lovecraft thing where I was like, trust me when I tell you that if I wrote any part of this manuscript it would blow your mind so i'm not going to tell you at all what it says you know like that always frustrates me a little bit like there's a thing that i saw that's so horrible that i can't even tell you what it is you're like okay okay (laughs) so i felt like i wanted to have a little bit of that to like give you the sense of like what is it that this person is trying to edit why even take the time to describe something as indescribable if you're not even going to get to the point you know yeah, it's almost like, you know, and he wasn't like a guy who was churning stuff 
stuff out at like an insane rate. Yeah. We would almost think that would be like like a Robert E. Howard tick, you know, when the guy's just cranking out like 5,000 words a day and he was like, and then Conan came across uh, an unthinkable being, uh, whatever. You know? <laughs> yeah, Lovecraft was so confounding to me as a kid because I started reading it when I was, you know, like 12 or 13. I'm, I'm sure Stephen King mentioned it and that's how I found it or something yeah. like that, Clive Barker. And uh, it was always like the content of the story was so cool. But like, yeah, to get there, you know, for especially for a you know, 12 year old or 13 year old, you're like, man, this is hard to read. It's interesting because in a way, his books are like Val Luton movies where he's like not showing you exactly. He's showing you the shadows of everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then the problem is when you actually make a movie about Lovecraft, you kind of can't do that because it's not shadow. It's too big. I mean, sometimes they're done well. I thought Colored Out of Space was pretty cool, mm -hmm. you know, Reanimator, obviously, but like, which is pretty different. But it's, it's hard to, how do you shoot a thing when the whole point is that if you saw it, you would go mad? Yeah, Lovecraft almost doesn't even care. Like, what's that one story um, where at the end of it, I think it's Dagon, he just jumps out of a window, and the whole thing was written as if a diary entry. Uh, yeah. It's like, so what is he, how does that work? And he just didn't even give a shit. He's frantically scribbling on the way down to make sure the premise is valid. Yeah, yeah. Sharp cornered Legos tattoo stinging configurations in the soft skin of my arms and neck and chest as he raises one of his kid sneakers over my head, poised to crash down on the side of my face. This is based on a real kid, by the way. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like a combination of two kids I went to daycare with. <laughs> <laughs> daycare, man. Yeah, you were getting some dark stuff happening at an early age. <laughs> yeah. But the feeling doesn't subside. When I run my hands along the insides of my arms, I can feel something rigid there, like a whole coral reef of calcium deposits beneath my skin. Ah, oh, see, that's great writing too, man. I mean, you've got a real knack for some of that descriptive uh, imagery. Yeah, I was trying, cause I, I actually reverse wrote the Lego story because I was thinking about what the words would feel like under your skin, and I was like, oh, I bet it would feel like Legos. Oh, yeah. I was drinking a lot of red wine at the time too. <laughs> Character of the word. Suffer, suffer, suffer. I bolt up and rush down the lightless hallway. As I'm moving, I keep running my hands down my body, feeling more of those little spurs of language beneath my belly button, on my hips. I feel them floating like stones between my balls, inside my scrotum. There's a terrible second after I flip the switch on the bathroom that I swear I can see a few words disappearing back into my skin. I clutch at my stomach and feel the word S-T-A-B, stab, smoothing out between my left nipple. I have some pretty weird stuff show up on my left nipple, too, sometimes. <laughs> I actually got my left nipple bitten off by a bluegill when I was a little kid, so I used to have a weird scarred nipple. <laughs> bitten off by a what? A bluegill. I was, or maybe like it was a, a small bat. Yeah, I used to live on a lake, and um, my sister was like, my sister was like, uh, you know, she was like 16, you know, trying to get her tan or whatever. She's floating in the lake, so I think I'm gonna be a funny jerk little brother. I'm gonna swim underneath and push her over, and I do, and she's mad. And then while I'm mocking her, climbing back up the ladder, this fish just like just takes my nipple off. <laughs> And oh my, my sister God. laughed so hard. Like I don't know that anyone's ever laughed harder than my sister wet laughing at me like like just like, trying to explain to her that this fish just bit off the tip of my nipple yeah i just love the the, the casualness in which you're just like oh yeah i got my left nipple bit off by a bluegill <laughs> or maybe a small bass yeah. 
that's like a very traumatizing and, and not regular activity for a kid to experience. It wasn't the whole thing, but it was, you know, it was the tip. It was like a, my, I got like a nipple circumcision. It was enough. <laughs> I don't think you can tell anymore. One time I asked my wife, and she's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, all right, I guess it's fine now. Well, I always wondered why guys had nipples, and now I kind of know. I love doing all the body horror in this stuff, too, because like, oh, yeah. I, I do think body horror is just fun. Well, I love how he, he becomes and embodies a lot of this, the words and things that he's that are driving him mad. They're showing up under his skin, and he's seeing him in the mirror, and, and they're disappearing. It's just, it's... Yeah, have you ever, like, felt that way when you're, like, been editing or, or something or working on something for a long time, and you get done, and you're, just, you're like, oh, I'm just all full of this thing. I'm just, like, I want to shake it off of me. Yeah, yeah, and you get in the shower and everything, it's still that slush It must still be surly, because just before bed, she asks me what's wrong. Like she's hurt, not angry. I squeezed her hand and tell her about this stupid manuscript that makes no sense, that some weirdo client wants me to redo for him. So just do it like they want and screw them. Take the money and run. It's, it's a lot more fun to work with the story that you love because then you, you're looking forward to diving in it. And when you're forced to be in this situation like this guy, uh, that, that's just a real nightmare because you're having to live that nightmare. Yeah, I've had a couple of editing jobs where I was. I've, I've done some really boring stuff. I edited a book about insurance law one time. Oh, God. And uh, I think I was actually editing the insurance law book when I wrote Necessary Cuts. I think it was part of what made me think of it was just like it was so boring and I was so annoyed with doing it. Um, but it, it paid really well, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, that, that definitely had some sort of subliminal effect. Uh, that maybe the genesis of this whole story started with insurance policy. I think it did. I, I, I'm actually I'm I'm basically positive that it did because I wrote this in August and I was editing that book through all of July and August, and I was doing so much copy editing at the time and I was like ah gah. <laughs> but it's not a crime to write fiction or poetry or whatever this is. And it would be tough to make a coherent confession about anti-poetry, like, we shape the clay of beginning into the shape of end, with faithful hands of the clay, 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 clay. You fuck-shitting bastard, gargling... Uh, I think you give just the perfect amount of information and, and no more, no less about Papa Mutt. And I loved reading those sections where the voices come in, because it, it just you just want people to be freaked out, but you don't want them to know enough to where they can really figure out what's going on. Like, I, I googled the heck out of Papa Mutt after this, because I was like, is that a thing that I'm missing? <laughs> oh, that's great! Yeah, and your author's note, you're like, I don't really know what it is either. And then So you kind of create this backstory with clay and silt and... Uh, it just, whenever he's re reading parts of this, it devolves into just this fuck shit stab kind of stuff. And it's like, that's really interesting to me to think that there's a, probably some sort of uh, esoteric, to use another Lovecraft word you never hear anywhere else, uh, background behind where, what this cult and this person, this god or whatever it is, uh, is doing. And do you know anything more than what I just described there? Or how did you kind of come up with this or discover this Papa Mud background? Well, at first, I love the I love the, the repeating effect of the, the, that you use when the, the words are like, because the words in the manuscript repeating so then when they like echo in the audio it's a nice yeah. au oral uh version of of that um yeah you know i didn't really like i, I didn't want to be too vague with the, with you know the manuscript had to be about something and so i was i was just trying to think of like i only thought it about as far as like okay it's like some sort of guy or group that worships some sort of mud-based god some sort of like swampy subterranean, not like journey to the center of the earth, like 10 feet down, gross, you know, mucky earthen thing. And then I, I would kind of, the great thing about not having, knowing you're not going to have to explain too much is that you can throw out little hints that like, I think make people think there's more there or like, oh yeah, I bet, I bet there's a, oh, there's an idea behind that. And you're like, no, 
not really yeah. like so it was just i would just try to connect stuff like when the manuscript shows up later and it's full of leaves and the, everything smells like a fountain or you know i just kept trying to come back to like dirt and the muck and the swamp and the earth yeah it's it's, it's sending stories in based on the materials it lives in and, and stuff you know that's that's how it thinks the submission guidelines wrote out <laughs> yeah. it didn't read the submission guidelines just like every other monster <laughs> <laughs> well and, and, and i kind of i guess in my mind imagine this would be like florida or louisiana or somewhere like hot <laughs> swampy like i definitely imagine the, the it came from like the southeast region for i don't that's i don't know why that's like the one detail that i feel very confident about Oh yeah, I, I definitely get the sense of like Florida on here. This is this is commonplace in Florida. There's so much <laughs> weird bullshit happening down there. That total Florida. And you know, it, interestingly, after the story came out, I had a guy email me and ask if I wanted to like, collaborate with him on like a series of like collaborative stories about Papa Mud and like build out the mythos of Papa Mud. Did, did his uh, email end with like fuck shit stack? <laughs> <laughs> It would have been a really funny gag if he did that. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't wind up doing it just because I'm kind of not a great collaborator, I guess. Um, but I was, like, super flattered that somebody, like, I was like, oh, cool. That, that's good. And it did make me kind of think about it. I still have in my back of my head, like, it would be pretty Lovecrafty to, like, bring that back in some capacity at some point. Yeah. Well, maybe he'll he'll send you an ungodly amount of money to do it uh, that smells like damp, wet leaves and it's <laughs> purely a coin form and uh, – and you'll get in. You'll have to get involved with it. It's probably Papa Mud himself, because who better uh, to be like, you know what? We need more Papa Mud. <laughs> He's like when a guy writes his own Yelp review. This is a fantastic book. <laughs> yeah, that's right about how awesome this Elder God is. <laughs> I like that Papa Mud is basically a troll to some degree. It's like needs the clicks. Yeah, total vanity fiction. <laughs> I mean, he is just like a bad client who does need the. You know, he just like, no, I want, I want my thing out right, and I want people to see it the way I see. You know, he's uh -huh. still just sort of. He's a pretty petty god, <laughs> whatever he is. <laughs> That's what it takes to be a god, is you have to be extremely petty and extremely, like, you need, you want people to worship you constantly. It's almost like a prerequisite to being a god is to be really insecure. I shake the whole mess onto the living room floor to discover a thick wad of money wrapped in a paper band. The bills are old, minted before the redesign in the 90s. They're threadbare and bleached to the color of flood water. It's a salad mix of ones, tens, fifties, and several two-dollar bills. <laughs> Sounds like good money right now, I'll tell you. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, I'd take it. There's <laughs> your, uh, your government stimulus money there. <laughs> That's how all the Trump checks should come in. Yeah. <laughs> As a, sa a wet salad of bills. Full of dead leaves. Just a sentence fragment. Fix it right, David. I flipped the envelope over. No name or address, no stamps, no return address. The floor turns marshy beneath my feet as I run for the bathroom. I make it just Didn't in time. Didn't change the gender on this? Like originally it was I can't remember. It was David yeah. a man. Yeah. No, it was a lady, and um, and, and and it was funny because then when you're like, well, I was gonna narrate it, so I was like, we're gonna have a, you know, because it was very last minute. You were like, I gotta narrate this myself. We don't have time to hire a outside person. It was moving very fast. And at first, I was like, I was like, well, I mean, I don't know. I wrote it as a you know, woman, and then I started thinking about, well, why did I write the character as a woman? And it was literally just because I had been talking to my friend, who's a copy editor, and who, who, you know, the doctor is a woman. I've been talking to my copy editor friend, and so I was just, I was kind of thinking about her to start with, and then I just kind of gave her a girlfriend for no real reason, because I, I, I wanted the couple to be really nice. Like, I, you know, I didn't want it to seem like a story about like the couple's problems were the. 
the narrator's problems or any way or that yeah. like that, that you know that it was like no 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 they're really nice people who get along great like this manuscript is the problem yeah 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 you know what's crazy that i just realized um the reason we had to replace this story uh, the, the story that was originally got bailed i'm always really reluctant to ask about gender questions now um, and, but sometimes, like, like in this instance, there's a there's a rational like production reason that, like, as I had to read the story, and a first person girl story is not going to be ideal for a male narrator, you know. Um, yeah. So you know, but in this situation with this commission, uh, there was a very minor character halfway through that the author really wanted. It seemed almost arbitrarily to be called a they, um, which is fine. I mean, that happens a lot. I don't have a problem with it. But in, in the context of where it was, there was a lot of they's happening that both meant a personal pronoun and, like, the actual use of they in a non-personal pronoun sense. Like, they went to the store. It's like, who did sure. she, she or – I mean, it, it sounded weird coming out, like, of my mouth when I read it. It was confusing. So I kind of asked. I was like, hey, can it be um, – can we make it a guy or a girl? Or uh, or is, can you add, add further clarification here? So just so when it's being read out loud – we know who who's doing what in this one paragraph essentially and that just was that did not go well as you can tell and then so the, the next question i had to ask was you to change the gender baby and i was like nervous but i was like whatever gotta go for it and i mean i hope people don't take it like too like at heart whenever these are all based on kind of production-y stuff you know to make the story best it's not based in like a you know ideology or anything like that so i don't know but people are really sensitive about it sometimes especially writers they they don't like having their as papa mud will attest they don't like having their <laughs> stuff tampered with too much so it's tricky well, no I mean, and when you asked me this to, about changing it you know because i went through and like and there was a couple things i had to change that actually were like it wasn't a big deal but like i had written the character as a woman and so in particular the biggest change was um that i remember was the when the the character goes in and there's the little there's the little period of blood yeah, in his underwear? Yeah. Well, it, make, it makes way more sense in a in a in a way, right? That it was just it had like caused the 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 narrator to like among all, all her other physical problems, she like has her period early, but then her period is a comma. Yeah, um, oh, which is so cool. I love that. I just yeah, I, I love that detail, and I was like, oh, I don't want to cut that out. And then I was just and so when I was rewriting it, that was the biggest thing I stumbled over. And then I was like, well. It's pretty freaky if the dude pees a little bit of blood. I mean, like yeah. it's, it's not like it's not quite as like nicely m- metaphorical or balanced. Oh, I, or whatever. I, I took it as him shitting blood or something. Just you know, anytime you look in your pants and there's there's blood, it's gonna be unnerving because you're asking yourself, is that did I piss it? Did I shit it? Like, the, why is there yeah, blood? Yeah, I down guess there? you're sure. In my mind, he, he pissed it a little bit, but I, 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 you know, I didn't really make that huge distinction. I, I, I was just, I just like. I remember like, that was like the last change that I made before I sent you the edit, and I was just like, you know what? It's Cronenbergian body horror. Blood came out. It's scary. Sent. You know, like yeah. Because I was gonna just cut it all together. It's too good um, to cut though. I mean, the period thing turning into comedy. You got to fit that in there somehow. And also like the moles and things looking like semicolons. It all fit together in that kind of narrative. Yeah, and the the the, the, the Times New Roman font, the specific mm-hmm. thing. Like it just felt like it felt like it tied a lot of those little things together. And that was the one thing that I was like, ooh, am I gonna have to lose that? Sometimes you're writing a story and it's like. Certain things, you know, like like gender or race, could be really important to the story, and yeah, you know, right. the, the, but sometimes not at all, right? If, if you sometimes it's just like, well, this story is just about these two people, and so in this one, yeah, I, I kind of realized like, oh yeah, the gender part here is really inconsequential as long as you just get the impression that like they're a nice couple, and the girlfriend is nice, and you know, I just didn't, I was really concerned about it not seeming like a problem with like inherent in the relationship and that like oh it just brought out some sort of mania it's like no 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 there was no mania before yeah right yeah th- this put them through something but th- at the end of the day he's still going mad uh, the world's gonna probably end but she still kind of wants to oh what's gotten into you you know <laughs> she <laughs> yeah, wants yeah. to bang him still why fight it like the other shit
be part of the change. We come from the change. We shape the clay of beginning into the shape of the end. The end. This. This is not the end. I loved using the choir music as kind of like a foundational thing because it's a multitude of voices, you know, and so just bending that idea to, to where there are voices in the soundtrack singing and they're echoey and weird and kind of distorted too was, was kind of fun to play along with. Well, and the kind of kind of religious element, like presumably this is some kind of religious something uh-huh. to someone, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. and the idea too of there's the reference with the and I and I don't know the answer to this where like it looks like the manuscript every letter is written by a different hand or whatever, mm-hmm. you know I, I like so theoretically there's a huge cult like who brought this manuscript to David's apartment right like yeah. did, did the did the guy who wrote it drive from Florida or was there somebody else he could send it to who was already in the city? Yeah, that's true. That well, that is such the foundational piece of so many of Lovecraft stories. Like, what what is a Lovecraft story without a creepy found manuscript somewhere? Well, well there it is. It's just on in this library, this moldering library. Yeah, and I love the idea that like if there was any semblance of a published Necronomicon, even if it was a limited print run of fifty, somebody proofread it. Like yeah. that's just how it is. I thought it was kind of the starting idea is that like you you don't get to have a a it has to have a proofreader and like such a mundane thing to do for a world ending like text yeah what is that um i mean it, it's it's just, it's the case often like even the bible right i mean like that is a world sure. ending scenario at the very end of it too and it's, it's a, <laughs> true a found document by multiple different people throughout like a long period of time that have all contributed into a mythos that it results in ending of the world which is kind of interesting i hadn't thought about that and, and and also you know god also got a pretty bad editing job done you know i'm sure he would be like hey i can't believe you left this thing out and then you put this thing in yeah uh oh you know what else is weird then jesus comes along which is basically a half man half god which is also something that lovecraft is really into was like the idea of these hybrids and the horror of that whole thing like of uh half there are rats in the walls right rats the, in the walls the... and uh shadow over Innsmouth, fish people that are you know like he's got this kind of phobia this xenophobia that also reflects in things that are part elder god or part non-human and that's that's the love of christ (laughs) it's interesting like you know the more you learn about lovecraft obviously he's like a pretty terrible person in most ways or and certainly a lot of them but it's like a lot of awful worldviews then get translated into horror which is then the metaphor sort of works in much more interesting ways than the like obvious sort of racist way that it started with him what is that manuscript, that really weird one that they found from the medieval ages, uh, the Voynich manuscript or something? Oh, the Voynich manuscript. Yeah. And you know what? I had a reference to the Voynich manuscript in the original um, in the original necessary cuss draft, and I think I cut it out. Oh, yeah? Oh, man. Well, yeah, that's – I mean, I guess it's common knowledge. I didn't know about it till much later in life, but it's just so fucking badass to think about what their mind was like when they were th- writing this, whoever it was. I heard that it was maybe possibly a woman's health manual. <laughs> Just, really? Yeah, I mean, but we don't really know. But it's just got all these weird drawings in it. People should Google it if they haven't uh, if they haven't heard of it before. But it's just this found manuscript from the medieval ages that has plants that don't exist and indications of uh, of a, a mindset that is reflecting all sorts of things around the world that we don't understand or know about right now, like different languages and uh, all sorts of weird symbols. And it's all you know not done as a prank. Like it looks like it's an actual manuscript or document uh, that was meant to be read and understood. And yeah, people have been trying to decode it for years. Upon years yeah you know what come to think of it i remember exactly how this i came up with i wrote this story for an anthology that didn't buy it 
the Nightside Codex, mm-hmm. and I, I came across it at Dark Markets, and they were like, we want we want stories about stuff like the Voynich Manuscript, and that caught my eye because I've always been interested in the Voynich Manuscript. So I had that idea floating around in my head, and then I was copy editing a lot. And then that's when I got the idea of the copy editing for the Voynich manuscript. And then, you know, then the Lovecraft gets folded into it, you know, basically walking circles around my block thinking. And um, that's how that all got kind of wadded together. And then I sent that story to the Nightside Codex. They didn't buy it. And I think you're the next person I sent it to. I, it's like, you know, it's hard to remember how the sort of soup all came together in a way, but that was a huge part of it was I I'd totally forgotten about that, that it was, yeah, i the Nightside Codex. Your subconscious mind, like, is forcing you to delete the horror of that uh, remembering it in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I've got, I've got a lot, a lot worse rejections than that one. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since that bass took off my nipple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was an acceptance if you think about it. He kept that, so. That's true. Actually, it was my first sale. <laughs> that was your first sale, yeah. What was it you you said in your outro here uh, of the story? Um, Lovecraft cl- collaborated with Houdini. Go more into that because I didn't realize that that was the case. Yeah, Lovecraft had collaborated because he didn't really like to collaborate uh, on his own stuff, but he would totally happily rewrite stuff or ghostwrite stuff. You know, um, he, it, I, 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 that's one like thing that I hold on to of like liking Lovecraft because he, you know, he he can, can be quite an unlikable fellow in a lot of ways, oh, most sure. ways. Yeah. Um, I respect his like willingness to like totally work with somebody and work on other people's stuff. He's like, he's down for it. He likes to write. But when it comes to his stuff, he's like, nah, I got this, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so he never wanted people. He wasn't really into people writing Cthulhu stories, but he, he wrote, um, a, a novel, I think, or something, you know, Houdini or articles. And he was Houdini's ghostwriter and Houdini really liked him and they were going to collaborate more. And I, I think, I think that's when probably around the time Houdini died. Because, you know, you could sell these articles, big deal, if you slap Harry Houdini's name on it. Absolutely. So, and Lovecraft was fine with it because he was getting paid pretty well, and I think he I think he kind of liked Houdini. Yeah. Well, I, that makes a lot of sense why he would, because Houdini was about the, the magical unknown and disappearing and getting out of traps and stuff. Like It's surprising he never wrote an, a, a story about a mu- magician in some capacity like that. That seems like a Lovecraftian thing to do. Like, the guy's powers come from some secret beyond the whatever, you know? Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, but yeah, and I don't think they ever met. Like I don't, they, I don't think that they were pals. I think it was like purely a publishing industry type, you know, co- mm-hmm. contact. Um, but it is one of it is one of the intersections of 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 people from history that I I, I like the most. Where you're like, really, those guys had a connection. They they, they seem like they couldn't have been farther apart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, when I was kind of writing the story and I was thinking of like, well, what's David's arc or whatever? What's his like, you know, his kind of fatal flaw is a little bit as his pride. Like he's, you know, as as his, uh, his lovely girlfriend points out, you know, he can be a bit of a snoot and he's a little, he like feels a need to put stuff in order. You know, you can tell like the, with the castle, the the Lego castle dream that he has, you know, it's like, no, no, no. It's, he, he has a, a, a overwhelming need for things to be in order. And it's like some part of it is driving him crazy that he can't put this manuscript in order. Yeah. When he should totally stop, <laughs> he should quit. He should just move on, and he'd be fine. I think editors with f- fiction tend to be a lot more overall kind of cautious about preserving voice and and not changing stuff. But like coming from uh, essays and journalism and nonfiction, oh man, writing comedy essays and getting the edits back by an editor who is not a comedian is maddening because oh. like they don't understand timing and then it's like they're like well there was an extra word here it's like no it's setting this up this is essential to the thing working you know 
that's the big difference is an audio uh, editor. I have to kind of think things in two fields. Like, is it written well? And is it going to read well when I read it or somebody reads it out loud? Because sometimes those aren't parallel and the same. Absolutely. Some writers sound great out loud and some writers sound kind of terrible out loud. Some jokes like would really work on paper. And then when you read them, they're just too clunky. Yeah, Dave Barry is a great example. Dave Barry is very funny. I've always been a big Dave Barry fan, you know, going back to his days, you know, writing the Miami con- column. And uh, But Dave Barry, is, he knows what's funny on the page. Mm-hmm. He knows, you know, but some of that stuff, it's still funny, but some of it doesn't work as well out loud versus a lot of stand-up bits look really naked uh, yeah. if you just type them out. But because so much of it is about delivery and timing. And so I, maybe one of the reasons I am um, enthusiastic about editing is that yeah, yeah, everybody's act is edited by the crowd. Mm-hmm. Like not that crowd that night per se, but like, yeah, the cumulative effect of you go, man, I thought this was the way to say it. And I've said it five times and it didn't get a laugh five times. So I guess I'll change it. And then sometimes you change it to what you think is worse, but everybody gets it and everybody laughs and you go, yeah. well, I, I guess that's the way, right? Like, like they're not wrong. Yeah, it's true. It's, and you just live in a baffling Shadow of Innsmouth kind of town at that point where everybody <laughs> everybody's slowly a, turning into a fish person. You just have to accept that you're the one non-fish person, and you just, you're all coming. Can't beat him, join him. Can't beat him, join him. Yeah. When you sit down to write comedy, uh, is it any different than than when you sit down to write fiction, or do you kind of start with that same cup of coffee, or do you do do you switch into a certain mode when you're going to be writing stand-up? Um, I you know it's funny. My, they're pretty pretty similar in in the sense that I, I tend to prefer to write everything in a notebook first. I really like handwriting everything, but like I will type fiction out in a first draft sometimes, but I never – comedy does not go onto my computer like in a written form. To me, nothing kills comedy like typing. Yeah, It's just death. And so I never actually want in comedy – I usually don't like to have a set version of the joke. Uh, I like that to evolve like really naturally. So what I'll do is when I write jokes, I tend to write in just keywords and phrases of, of certain things that need to go and move the order around. and I. I'm crossing stuff out and moving arrows around the page and doing all kinds of goofy stuff. Um, and the reason I'm doing that is I don't want to have a script. I want to go up there and just talk about it and make sure I hit these key points. And then if you do that a few times live and then you listen back to the tape, like it starts to, it starts to fall into short shape. And eventually you do wind up with the script that you could type out, mm. you know? And, and, the, but like, I don't, I never want to get too rigid. Whereas with fiction, obviously it's inherently, you know, you're, the only way to get a good sentence is to write a bad one and then come back to it. You got to write it all out. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I tend to, there's a coffee shop uh, by my house when coffee shops are open, I will be going back to, it's called Royal grounds in Minneapolis. And uh, I, I am, I treat that place like my office. I'm there usually three, four hours a day writing um, if, if I can every day and my porch, I have a nice uh, three, three season screened in porch. I like to sit out there late at night and read. Actually, I had a funny story that happened to me. I was um, I, I I walk a lot when I write. I, I, I find it hard to think sitting still. Mm-hmm. So I like to pace. So but, you know, I have a small office. It's not a lot of pacing room. So I'll write for a while and then I'll go walk around the block or I'll walk around a five block radius in the neighborhood. Well, I, I'll do this multiple times a day while I'm writing. And I, I just I don't think anything of it. But one day when the uh, lockdown had started, I was walking by and one of my neighbors shouted out, hey, Brian. And I was like, oh, hey, Ethan. And he goes, uh, we're all like you now. And I'm like, what? <laughs> he goes, yeah, we all got nothing to do, and we just walk around the neighborhood all day long. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, like, jerk. Yeah, it's like, so, it's like so the neighbors think I'm some sort of weirdo who's like stalking around the neighborhood. It's like, how do you explain to them? I'm like, no, I'm. This is working. I swear, things are coming from this. Man, I'm gonna try that line sometime when my neighbor's out. Like, hey, neighbor. We're all like you now. <laughs> it was when he shouted it to me. I was like, 
what? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's almost like, did I, did I hear that right? <laughs> <laughs> the creepy Tommyknockers kind of situation there, too. Just a bunch of Brian start coming out of the woodwork and all this behind <laughs> the house. We're all like you. It was starting to make me wonder, like, what is it you're doing that yeah. you think that I do so much? <laughs> you know? And it turns out that the answer is be unemployed and walk a lot. Okay. Yeah, that could be – that could go a lot of dar- darker ways than that answer. Yeah. Are you all getting your nipples bit off by fishes? I don't know. You yeah. know, the fun thing I, – I like writing horror and comedy both. Um, and They're so similar because, yeah. like, I think horror and comedy are both based on involuntary reactions. And there's, like – there's such a specific reaction that you're going for. You know, and then like then it's also amazing to me that they cross over when they should be the opposite. Right. Like you would think you should never laugh when you should scream. But like it's all just tension release. I love being in a horror movie and like some people scream and some people laugh is one of my favorite like group setting vibes. Yeah, man, I always thought that like writing comedy, performing stand up is one of the bravest things that a human being can do, especially if you're like into writing. And as a writer, your your work is kind of done once you're done writing, you know, but to have a lot of it hinge on the moments and being able to sell it and, and this, the, just the absolute horror of bombing for an audience and being stuck up there in front of them still and trying to work through a set has got to be. Has that ever happened to you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had a few just like every comedian has had a few horrendous bombs. And um, I mean, it, it doesn't really once you get good at it, like I, I don't think I could bomb like I could still bomb for sure. But I would actually be amused by it. Once you get a certain level of comedy, like just because you've done it so many times, you know that you're like know what you're doing. And so when it's going really bad, it starts to become funny to you. You're like, oh, this is a this is a terrible situation. Like <laughs> This is awful. You know, but it's like it's it, it's somehow funny instead of scary. But I, 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 I remember one time doing a casino gig and I, I literally got zero laughs in 30 full minutes. I mean, zero. And then the manager came and sat down and clearly was like filling out my evaluation angrily in front of me, like looking me in the eye while no one was laughing. Oh, man. That was and that was early enough in my career that like now I would just acknowledge it. I'm like, well, this is going terribly. What do you what do you guys think we should do about this? Yeah. You know? But I just kind of locked up and I was trying to keep going and. I actually had a, a kind of a Lovecraftian stand-up gig one time. I, I did a gig in the Missouri Valley, Iowa, that was had a plague of frogs in the mm. town. Like the ground boiled with frogs. The road what? looked like it was moving. And when we were driving into the gig, we could hear this like thunk, 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 thunk of these ca- frogs bouncing off the front of your car. And like they were like my headlights were like streaked pink from frog blood. Oh God. And then we had to walk across this field from the motel. I mean, this is a motel, yeah. uh, the motel to the bar and the field we walked across was just writhing. You're just stepping on these frogs. Some of them were tiny. Some of them were big. They were everywhere. The and the, yeah, right. And then the bar turns out to be, as we find out when we get in there, essentially a, a, a white supremacist bar that operates as a meth dealership after 2, <laughs> 2, 2 a.m., uh, which we learned when the bar closed and people started making mysterious deliveries and pickups from the back of the bar. Uh, after they had all but physically chased me and the other comedian out of the bar because we're two white dudes, but we were not the right kind of white dudes. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be the worst to be the not the right kind of white dude. You're like almost yeah, made it. <laughs> almost like my buddy, my buddy John pointed it out. He leans to me and goes, "Oh, dude, they can smell the tolerance on us from here." <laughs> And so when we, we went back to the, the room after the show, it was one of the worst shows I've ever done. Another total hor- – genuinely scared for our lives. And we got back to the hotel, and the, there were so many frogs that when you opened the door, the motel was just like right off the ground. And so the frogs would come in toward the light. And so I ended the night by taking my comedy notebook and flipping frogs out the open window. As one does. 
you know. As one does. Got paid a hundred dollars for that gig, and it was a five-hour drive there and a five-hour drive back. Good lord, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what happens when you go into frog country, boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of. I mean, I mean, that was like early on road career where you're just like taking any gig you can get. No. Even even when it's smack in the middle of frog season. Yeah, no, we had no <laughs> idea. Like I've never seen, or and we like. Well, the weirdest part was we were like, so we walk into the bar and we're like, uh, so hey, um. A lot of frogs out there, and the bartender was just like, "I guess." I like, what do you mean? It's more frogs than I've ever seen in my life by a factor of a thousand. That would be a hilarious bomb that night when you're like, "Hey, so you guys have frogs out here, huh?" And it's just dead silence. Like that's not even weird to them, so it doesn't land as a joke. <laughs> yeah. Get on with it. Me and John Connery, the other comic, always talk about we'll never have. There's no way we'll ever have a gig that bad again. Like there's no way we'll ever end up in a white supremacist bar or a plague of frogs, much less both of them on the same show. Yeah, well, you never know. You've still got a right nipple, so, I mean, that could come into play. <laughs> <laughs> There's a fish out It's like uh, Peter Pan with the alligator uh, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, hook. Yeah, right. He hears the clicking. It's coming back for his other hand. Actually, I won, uh, I won $50 in a high school con- poetry writing contest for writing a song about my nipple getting bitten off, or writing a poem. <laughs> was, I think that, was, that literally was the first sale I ever made. Was that oh. poem about nipple? I had this song called "Everybody's Got Nipples." Uh, <laughs> that it's about unity and bringing people together. Because as, as weird as we are, we all have two nipples, you know. And well, no, sorry, but I mean, most of us. <laughs> hey, 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 exactly. <laughs> See, you got to get more woke with your nipple talk. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why the guy at the bar uh, was not into you. He could just sense. He was like, "Yeah, one nippler over here, a unip. Get out of here, unip. We don't take too kindly to people with one nipple out here." <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> Did they? Apparently not. I, I don't know. What do you think people are drawn to with with Lovecraft and uh, a lot of that kind of dark mysticism and, and body horror and things that are alluded to? Like it's it seems more popular these days than it ever has been. I think it's a bad idea to overlook Lovecraft just because, for better or for worse, um, Lovecraft's ideas are so baked into modern horror. Like no, it's like it's like the way the Beatles are baked into rock and roll at this point. Like yeah. nobody is nobody's writing horror that isn't isn't at least. Even if you're not writing or writing away from it, like it's it's foundational. And so because some of those ideas are so foundational, you know, I think we forget sometimes that the, they come from this subtext. And so you can start playing with the ideas, um, just not 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 realizing the subtext is there. And like your characters can really other uh, I mean, this is a verb. Your characters can like other other people. Yeah. You know, so much horror is about like the terror of the outsider and all this. And it's coming from a guy who was afraid of literal outsiders, like from other countries and other races. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like if you're not aware of that, I think you could actually wind up writing stuff that, that has these bad ideas baked into it. So you need to engage with it so that you know when you're dealing with it, like which parts of this do I – incorporate or which parts of this do I use, but which parts do I really need to like deal with or peel out or, or revitalize? Uh, definitely going to look forward to producing your story coming up on the Drabblecast next. It's a great tale about a kind of like that Dr. Frankenstein relationship with his, uh, his minion and getting an intern throwing things off. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's played with the same kind of, uh, uh, dead seriousness is this story, but it's just an absurd uh, the territorialism that that what is it Gorag or whatever the, Gorag yeah good old yeah. Gorag <laughs> yeah I'm looking forward to hearing you uh, hearing you read that there's a lot of that that's, I think that's a that one leans a little more into the comedy even than unnecessary cuts well good luck tonight and uh, uh, this has been awesome I appreciate you getting on here and and, uh, and chatting with us yeah thanks for having me man I always like doing stuff with the Drabblecast cool cool all right we'll talk to you soon man cool catch you later. <laughs>